Six o'clock, and that's right. I no longer play the game. That's been one of my favorite songs for a very, very, very long time. Good evening. It's six o'clock on the great east coast of the United States of America. My name is Mark Riley. This is the Mark Riley Show, and we have so much stuff to talk about. Everybody from Rachel uh, Dolezal to Donald Trump, and we're going to start with him. Uh, for those of you who've been living under a rock for the last 24 or so hours, well, first of all, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship. Congratulations to them. But Donald Trump uh, decided to announce that he's running for president. Now, what's interesting to me about this, aside from the fact that the man is the biggest blowhard in this or probably any other hemisphere, uh, is the fact that people take him seriously. Now, He's already done this a couple times. I believe in 2000, he said he was going to run, and then didn't. He said he was going to run in 2012, and then he didn't. And I guess the third time is a charm for a lot of people. I guess a lot of folks figure, well, you know, this is another time, 2016, and he's announcing, so he must be serious. His allies and those close to Donald Trump say he's serious this time around. What are his credentials? Well, look, I'm not going to run his credentials for you. I know what he thinks his credentials are. Um, more power to him. Here's what's interesting to me about this. And I, I have some friends on Facebook who have already kind of mentioned this already. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm getting over a cold, so forgive me if I cough a little bit this evening. Um, Donald Trump has the potential to seriously damage the so-called Republican brand. Now, I'm coming to detest the term brand simply because it's, it's overused. But, and by the way, he used it as well. He wants to restore the American brand, you know, to a place of prominence, past the Chinese, past the Mexicans, past whoever else he doesn't particularly care for, or past anybody he thinks this country's in competition with. But Donald Trump, blowhard aside, represents to me a, a, a kind of paradigm shift in American politics. Because there are some people who have, you know, begun crunching numbers and going into all sorts of analysis about how and under what circumstances Donald Trump could win this thing. Now, never mind the fact that there are so many, what are there, over a dozen I thought there was closer to 19 or 20, but there must be at least by now a dozen, 13 people who have said they're running for the Republican nomination for president. I'm not going to try and run them all here off the top of my head because they're not that important, at least not to me. If they're important to you, Google who's running for president 20, uh, as a Republican 2016, you'll get the list. But Donald Trump's decision to run and his uncanny ability 
to generate media. And, and by the way, a good deal of free media. Remember what he did a few years ago with Barack Obama's birth certificate. People covered that like they were covering, you know, uh, uh, royal nuptials in England or something. Trump, I have proof that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. He never produced Jack. He, I thought, forced the president unwisely, in retrospect, to come up with his own Hawaiian birth certificate, for God's sake. But, see, for Donald Trump, that was mission accomplished. It burnished his brand. And there are people in this country, and I know a lot of you think this is crazy, but there are people in this country who believe with every fiber of their being that Donald Trump's what's best for this country. He's trying to sort of out Reagan, Reagan. You know, Reagan won in 1980 largely by trying to play to America's desire to be exceptional, to be the preeminent country on the planet. And that was, by the way, during the, during the time of the Soviet Union. Now there is no Soviet Union. Yet Donald Trump would have you believe, and, and by the way, he's not the only one. Others are going to run on this same ridiculous platform, that Barack Obama has run the American brand into the ground. They can't really boff him on the economy because the economy is not doing as poorly as it was when he took office. But they will smack him around on foreign policy. He's weak. He's this. He's that. He's the other. Now, they can only do that for so long because he's not running. And I'm not sure they're going to be able to Velcro Barack Obama's policies onto Hillary Clinton or anybody on the Democratic side. More on that later. But Donald Trump's decision to run is, to me, maybe one of the best things that could happen to Democrats. Or, for that matter, independents running as Democrats. Again, more on that later. Now, what I think a lot of people ought to take a serious look at is the amount of media coverage Jeb Bush got, who everybody figures is a serious candidate and some might say is the front runner how much play he got compared to the amount of play that Donald Trump got. And my guess is you'd find it was a wash. It was kind of, sort of, just about even. But, you know, when it comes to Trump, it's all about Trump. Where did he make his announcement? Why? Was it at the Waldorf? Was it at Madison? Of course not. It was at one of his holdings, Trump Tower. Where else would Donald Trump, who has put his name on almost everything he has ever touched, where else would he announce that he was running for president without the slightest bit of irony? Such is the nation in which we live, party people. It's America. And a blowhard like Trump can run. And he can spend his money. Now, I've been in conversations with several people who have said a variation of the following. Said, look, if I'm going to vote for a billionaire, I'd vote for Mike Bloomberg a lot faster than I'd vote for Donald Trump. Add my name to that number. If I was going to vote for a billionaire, and there's no saying I would, but if it was a race between billionaires, Mike Bloomberg would win hands down. At least he's run something besides his mouth. Donald Trump, 
still in formation in terms of what he's actually running upon. You know, it's one thing to talk about, well, we're going to do this, and we're, I'm going to be the greatest jobs president God ever put on. How are you going to do it? Uh, that, that's for later, I assume, for much later. To the shame, moving right along, to the eternal shame of the New York State Legislature, rent regulations expired. Expired! How do you imagine that rent regulations, the protections that are afforded 2 million renters in this city, and these regulations generally limit how much landlords can charge for a million apartments. It expired Monday night. After, according to the New York Times, lawmakers failed to reach an agreement on how to extend them. Now, you figure if they can't reach agreement on this, they must have been dealing with some really heavy, substantive stuff that they couldn't get around to reaching agreement on this. They were talking about issues involving dogs, for Christ's sake. Dogs! And I love dogs. But you don't sit there and say you can't come to agreement on regulations. At the same time, you're arguing about dog laws, for God's sake. Now, uh, it's interesting because different groups and different politicians have staked out different positions on regulations. Now, the governor has his plan. The governor has linked an extension of rent regulation to a a tax credit that would expand access to private schools. Now, they've already managed to get in place a policy that would change sexual consent standards on college campuses. That they did. And bless them for that. But it is... Ridiculous to me that the governor says late Monday night there will be no short-term emergency caused by the expiration. He says, quote, while the legislature needs to act immediately, New York tenants should know that this state government will have zero tolerance for landlords that seek to exploit those who live in rent-regulated units. Now, this is not to say all landlords would exploit tenants who live in rent-regulated units. But anybody that spent 15 minutes in New York or rented an apartment on a one-year lease can tell you that landlords are already, and I emphasize already, trying to exploit people in regulated units. They're trying to get them the hell out so that other higher-paying tenants can come in. That's been a fact of New York life. Geez, for for a generation. It's called gentrification. But no, nothing to fear. We can't do jack, but don't worry about it. It's not going to affect you. Now, there have been a number of reasons proffered about why the state legislature, and I know this is a New York story, and I know this is the Internet. We go all over the planet. But you might want to take a long look at where you live if you're, listening to me from outside the area. And think about this for a minute. These are people in the legislature who are scared to death 
that something bad on the corruption front is going to happen to them. That Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, is going to come banging on their door, demanding records, and maybe, if he doesn't like what he sees, bringing indictments. And there has been a caution and timidity ever since Dean, both Dean Skelos, the Senate Majority Leader, and Sheldon Silver, the Speaker of the Assembly, are both up on corruption charges. Now, I don't know whether they did what they said, what, what you know has been alleged. That's not really the issue. But there is, you talk to people that know Albany well, and they will tell you in hushed tones that a lot of the reason why this stuff isn't getting done is because people are scared. Scared to make the deals that they normally make. And that may not be a bad thing on a certain level if the deals they make involve any level of corruption. But they're scared. They're scared to do legal stuff, much less corruption. The New York Times describes it as follows. The atmosphere in the Capitol has been tense in recent days as politicians blamed each other for the lack of action. That happens all the time. Happens in New York City. Happens in the state, happens in states all over the country, and of course, it happens in D.C. Florida's legislature goes through the same thing. No, I want this. No, I think in Florida it's over Medicaid, Medicaid funding. So, you know, it, was it smart for the governor to link the tax credit thing, which benefits kids that go to private schools? Was it smart to, be, to, to link this to an extension of rent regulation? The linchpin of a rent regulation extension is not just an extension. It's a change. See, I'm trying to break this down because most of the stories I've seen about the rent regulations don't really tell you what anybody is trying to accomplish here. Now, here's the thing that people are trying to deal with, tenant advocates are trying to deal with. And that is how fast rent-regulated or rent-stabilized apartments end up being converted to market-rate apartments. See, because this is why you will get people who paid their rent every month for two years or four years or six years and suddenly find one day that their checks are getting returned. Because their rent, as far as the landlord is concerned, is too low. He's renting a one-bedroom apartment across the hall from you for 50% or maybe even twice as much as you're paying. And that galls him. Because that's called profit unrealized. So Democrats in the Assembly, to their credit, want to get rid of vacancy decontrol, which is what speeds the conversion of rent-stabilized apartments to market rate. Right now, when rent reaches $2,500 and it goes vacant, it can go to market rate. In other words, it may be $2,500 when it goes vacant, but the landlord can charge five grand if he thinks he can get it. He or she, I shouldn't be sexist about all this. So the governor has suggested either eliminating vacancy decontrol, which would be a good idea, or raising a threshold of $2,700. Not much. 200 bucks. And by the way, the Assembly wanted to pass, an ex- they actually did pass an extension that would have given 
the legislature two more days to reach an agreement, which sounds so Washingtonian, it makes me want to hurl. Now, the Senate, on the other hand, which of course is controlled by Republicans, formerly Skelos, now Flanagan from Long Island, they wouldn't pass a short-term extension. It passed, the Senate did, its own proposal that provided an eight-year extension, but left vacancy decontrol as is. Now, I've been looking all day, and I looked just before the show started, to find out whether they've reached agreement, because technically speaking, this is the end of session today. Some are saying they may stay a little longer to try and get some of this stuff sorted out, which would be nice. Uh, But, you know, there's an aura of, can't you guys get anything done around this? Anything? You know, uh, given the alleged level of corruption, and, and, you know, you can talk about allegations against Skelos and Silver, but there have been plenty of guys in the legislature, uh, you know, who ended up going to the who's gal after being convicted of corruption, which would lead some cynics, not me, but some cynics to say, well, yo, you can take the money, but you can't work on behalf of the people. Something to think about, y'all. Just something to think about. And it's something to think about particularly when you realize that housing in New York City is a weapon. It is a weapon. And we're going to get into the whole question of low-wage workers a little further down the road, too, in this broadcast. Because that, too, is part of this nexus. The more they charge... And the less people make, the bigger the squeeze on people that can't afford it. And in the meantime, they're talking about dog legislation. You get what you pay for. Let's shift our focus for a moment to Fairfield, Ohio, a family in the Buckeye State. I never knew what Buckeye exactly was, but anyway. Uh, They're accusing police in the town of Fairfield of using excessive racially motivated force during a confrontation at a city-owned pool last week. What is it with black people at pools? (laughs) First it's Texas, and now it's Ohio. And, you know, well, well, we'll get into that. The encounter occurred after a woman by the name of Crystal Dixon brought several children and teens to the Fairfield Aquatic Center. One teen was quickly asked to leave because he didn't have a proper swimsuit, according to a media report. Dixon went to get the swim swim trunks for the team, but was told when she returned that he couldn't get in the pool. Now, okay, couldn't get in the pool. Next thing you know, cops show up. Dixon tried to get others out of the pool, passing by one officer who ordered her to leave. A short time after that, police tried to detain some of the adolescents. Uh, And it's not clear from a video. And again, we talked about this last week, y'all. Cops and video don't always mix. It's not clear exactly how the confrontation escalated from one kid not having the proper swim trunks to a cop throwing a 12-year-old kid against a police car. 
while being grabbed by her neck. Child was later identified as Ms. Dixon's niece. Four people were arrested at the pool. Dixon and another adult were charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. A 15-year-old boy faces the same charges, and the 12-year-old, I guess they must think she's the instigator, assault and resisting arrest. A 12-year-old. How long do you think that's going to hold? Assault and resisting arrest. By the way, uh, Crystal Dixon is six months pregnant. And she was rushed to a hospital for an evaluation. Everything's cool, though. She claimed that her niece suffered a fractured jaw and broken ribs. The injuries have not been independently confirmed, according to, guess who? The police. Every cop who responded to the scene was white. Now, you may say, well, what are you bringing that into it for? Why are you talking about, why are you bringing race into this? It seems as though, and I, I, I mean, I don't know how many black people live in Fairfield. It may only be the bunch of kids that went to the pool. I don't know. But it would seem to me that somehow, somewhere, some way, cooler heads would prevail. If you didn't have a black cop there, okay, fine. All the people that responded were white. Where was the white supervisor who might have run by his or her head, hey, you know what? Somebody may end up videotaping this on their smartphone. Duh. But, you know, what are you going to do? Crystal Dixon said there was a racial motivation to this. Uh, there are people in Cincinnati who think they wanted these kids out of the pool because they were black. Now, Blacks and swimming pools, and beaches for that matter, have a long and not particularly flattering to the powers that be history in this country, okay? <clears throat> there are people alive today who remember when blacks were not allowed in certain pools, in certain beaches. I marched, as many of you know, in a drawing juvenile many moons ago. And in 1970, I didn't march in this corps at that time. I marched two years later. But in 1970, that corps traveled to Miami, Florida. They stayed in a hotel in Miami and were told right off the top that the black kids in the corps, it was a thoroughly integrated drum corps, that the blacks in that corps could not swim in the pool. Now, everybody may think we're in a post-racial period, and this is like old news, and why are you bringing it up now? I submit that there are people who still hold that racial animus, apparently, when it comes to black people going swimming. One of these things happening in Texas and one of these things happening in Ohio, to me, are not necessarily just random coincidence. Now, the Fairfield police chief says, all they are trying to do is calm everyone down. It's just business. Uh, I don't know. 
I don't know. Everybody's questioning, oh, there's no racial motivation here. They were breaking our policy. We told them they couldn't be here anymore, and it's really scary, and I don't feel safe. That's one employee. I'm not, uh, I'm not buying that. I am not buying that. It's really scary. What's so scary? You told them they couldn't be there. Why? Because one kid didn't have a swimming suit? And the woman was going to get one so he could go in? And suddenly there's a problem? I don't know. It's 24 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. Moving right along to upstate New York. Who would have thought at this point that those two escaped killers would still be on the land? Yesterday, the state police in New York, they escaped, of course, from the Clinton Correctional Facility in Denimore, about 20-some-odd miles from the Canadian border. State police in New York announced they were refocusing their manhunt to new areas and changing their strategy, expanding beyond the woods, swamps, and fields that 800 law enforcement officers have been scouring for 11 days. A ship. They don't know where these people are. They don't know whether they pose a clear and present danger to anybody at this point. They really don't. They've tended the media to focus on this woman who has now been arrested and charged with aiding and abetting these two guys, Richard Matt and David Sweat. And you know, there's all kinds of love triangle stuff. Her husband visited her in the joint. I don't care. The major question here, it's a twofold question. One, they have no leads at all. Where these are these guys criminal masterminds? Are they geniuses or something? Because there's nothing in their record that says they're so smart they've been able to elude law enforcement for all this time. That's not to say that law enforcement isn't doing its job. I'm just saying. And I said this before, and I'm going to, I said this last week. And I'm going to say it again for emphasis this week. These prison and jail facilities across New York State and across America are invisible places. The people that are incarcerated there and the people who are in charge of those incarcerated there. The American public does not want to know about them. Period. They don't. They don't know. They don't want to know. When somebody go two murderers break out of jail, then everybody's concerned. But under normal circumstances, people figure, well, locked up, keep them locked up, and don't bother us with it. There's not, there, other than people who may have had some contact with the criminal justice system, you ask the average New Yorker on the street where Denimore or New York is, they're not going to know. They are not, even after all this, they're not going to know. Because there's no concern with prisons. Not really. If there was, the system would be different. The incarceration of individuals who commit crimes would be at least on a more humane platform, at least. And there would be an ongoing oversight and concern. Now, they've tried to do this in New York with Rikers Island. But you see, 
when a particular way of doing things and way of being becomes hardened and a culture just like the NYPD becomes entrenched it is very very difficult to change it because people figure well okay they're paying attention now but in six months I'm going to either be behind bars or I'm going to be patrolling those behind bars, patrolling the halls of the, where those behind bars are incarcerated, and nobody's going to care anymore. Nobody's going to pay attention anymore. Now, the size of the people force that's looking for these guys is about 800 people. Apparently, if you read the latest media about this, the leads, I mean, they put out a, what, $20,000 reward? The leads have dried up. Like water in the Gobi Desert. The leads have dried up. Nobody seems to know where these people are. The people in the immediate area of Danamore, most of whom, by the way, depend on the prison for their livelihood, they just want to feel it because they know. They work in that joint. They know what the deal is. So, or I guess I should say, and so it goes. Because it keeps on going and keeps on going. And the search will continue. And God willing, eventually, they will catch up to these people. I don't know what goes on from there. But hopefully, they will get caught and they will be reincarcerated. We're going to take a quick break at 6.30, halfway through the program. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the strange case of Rachel Dolezal, who says, I identify as black. Well, we got something in common then, because so do I. Stay with us. This is the Mark Riley Show. Man, you know, I should have let that music play longer. I love that song. It's just, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, And uh, my apologies, we don't have the phones up because I'd love to take phone calls from people. Um, You know, uh, the phone companies don't always do right by media outlets. Now, they'll do right by the big boys. They will do right by them. But PRN... They, they, they don't seem to be. And it's not PRN that's not getting it together. I know that. I have seen what has happened when uh, so-called lesser media outlets have phone problems or need phone service or need something installed. And next thing you know, it's weeks 
Well, we'll get somebody over there soon. Anyway, let me let me not let me not belabor that. Rachel Dolezal. I don't you know, I don't know what to make of this this particular situation. I really I, I, I'm not sure. Uh for those of you who again haven't been paying attention over the last little while, she was the head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington, until very recently when she was, I guess, outed as not being black. Now, understand that not being black should not be a bar to somebody serving as the head of the NAACP. If you look at the, I haven't seen that many people focus on this, if you look at the history of the NAACP, the people that founded it were both black and white. It's not like it was an exclusively black organization or a black group of people that founded the organization. That's not true. What I think people are focusing on here is whether she lied about being black. She, uh, you know, there's a, first of all, she resigned as head of the Spokane NAACP. And as John Stewart said, Spokane, I didn't know Spokane had an NAACP. Well, you learn something new every day, homeboy. But, uh, and, and she lost a bunch of other stuff, too, virtually at the same time. Um, there was a time when she did identify herself as a white woman. Not now, though. Some people, co-workers, relatives, who started hearing that her background was mixed race said, what, what, who? And that she called herself black. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Her parents are three European of three different European ethnicities, none of which is African. <laughs> uh, she's been on TV, which might not have been the smartest thing in the world for her to do. She was on yesterday, and of course, she has sparked this raging debate, as the New York Times says, about racial identi- identity and fabrication. Uh, she said that she identifies as black. Now, again, this ain't new. It's not new. One example. I don't know how many of you know the fabled jazz pianist Keith Jarrett. Keith Jarrett ain't black. But when he was young, and, you know, as a performer, used to wear an afro, and people used to assume he was black. He was like, yeah, you're black, right? <laughs> you know? And apparently, for a period of time, Keith Jarrett just never spoke to it. Not that he said he was black. Eventually, he said, I think he, he was from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and again, European roots. His people were from Europe. So it's not the first time that somebody has been either identified as black or has identified themselves as black when they were not. And it's funny because I, I have a really good Facebook friend, young lady I've known, well, she's not a young lady anymore, but a lady I've known for a very long period of time. And she said, well, why not just let her be black? She wants to be black. We got room after all. Uh, and, you know, maybe there, maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something to that if you want. If you want to be black, come on. 
I mean, there's no whatchamacallit on here. Uh, you know, there's no uh, uh, particular uh, uh, requirement at the NAACP that she be black. Now, there is a question. Uh, apparently, Rachel Dolezal went to Howard University. Uh, and I don't, you know, uh, there's a question. I'm not sure if she actually got a scholarship. She alleges, and she alleged in a law- lawsuit when she sued the university in 2002, that they told her she must have some white relatives that could help with her tuition. So I don't know whether she got an HBCU uh, scholarship or not. She said, because uh, Matt Lauer said, that, when did you start deceiving people? And she said, quote, I do take exception to that because it's a little more complex than me identifying as black or answering a question of, are you black or white? She's described herself as transracial and said, well, I'm definitely not white. Nothing about being white describes who I am. Okay, whatever. She, some people would allege that she has been able to navigate the corridors of power and influence in the black community by claiming to be black. I mean, I don't know that she would not have received the presidency of Spokane's NAACP, if she's, you know, came and said, hey, I'm a white woman. You know, I may have my hair up in braids or whatever. I may look a little darker than most, but I'm white. I don't think they would have necessarily said, well, you can't be president of this local chapter. And by the way, I didn't notice there's a person named Baz Dreisinger, who's an English professor at John Jay College, and authored a book called Near Black, <laughs> White to Black Passing in American Culture. Now, you know, there were guys I knew as a young man who were white and took on all the trappings of blackness, whatever they felt those trappings were. I had a very close friend who's deceased now, who dressed black, who talked black, used to wear Kangol's, you know, used to wear, you know, the shark skin suits the whole nine. They used to call them back in the day white Negroes. Uh, I always wondered, though, at a point, and I don't know that this pertains directly to Rachel Dolezal or not, but I always thought in the back of my mind, you know, one day when it no longer is fashionable for this person, this really good friend of mine, to act like this, he, he's going to go right back to being a white guy, you know, uh, because he can. Where obviously black people, even if they act white, people are always going to see him as black. You know, I mean, unless they're extremely light-skinned. There are a lot of different things about her past. Uh, her parents, Ruth Ann and Lawrence Stolazow, uh, Apparently, they, she uh, alleged that they weren't even her parents. I don't know how she pulled that one off. She's also estranged from her brother. So, you know, I, it, it's a very, very strange and twisted path. Um, my guess is at this point in her life, I don't know what she's going to end up doing. I mean, maybe... 
like my friend, she's just going to say, okay, well, all right, it didn't work identifying as black. I'll go back to being white. I don't know. What, what's, what's the, you know, what's the hubbub, bub? There were African-Americans who knew her as recently as five, six years ago, who thought at the time they met her and befriended her that she was black. I can see how that might, you know, how people might do that if she didn't refute it. She taught courses at North Idaho College and later at Eastern Washington University. She worked in the Africana Studies program there. Now, again, uh, the law says you can't discriminate against people based on skin color. So if she was white and was working in the Africana Studies Department, she could do that. I don't know that they could, you know, blow her out because she wasn't black. But it, it's the three-card Monty nature of this. And I, those of you who know anything about cards know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a three-card Monty element to this. You know, who's got the red, who's got the black? Who's got the red, who's got the black? And I don't, one of the things that, that kind of sort of troubles me a little bit is I don't know why this should spark a gigantic debate about racial identity. One woman doing this, and now everybody's going to wring their hands and say, well, you know, uh, maybe, come on. In her case, let the chips fall where they may. If she was lying and telling people she was black and using that to further whatever career she had or whatever, shame on her. Otherwise, let it be. I mean, if it was me and I was in her shoes, I'd, I'd, I'd cop. Yeah, I'm white. <laughs> so what? <laughs> what difference does it make? I, as an African-American male, don't have that option, don't have that luxury, and, and wouldn't avail myself of it if I did, because I like being black myself. I know about the rest of y'all, but, uh, you know, uh, be comfortable with who you are. Now, uh, we mentioned a while back when the Brooklyn senator from the state of Vermont, Bernie Sanders, announced he was running for president. And lo and behold, the New York Observer, <coughs> that August publication, has a story that says, Bernie mania, why is socialist Senator Bernie Sanders so popular? Now, I think I know why Bernie Sanders is so popular. I've interviewed Bernie Sanders at least a half dozen times. Aside from the Brooklyn accent, which I, it, which I think anybody who spent 15 minutes in New York would find endearing, Bernie Sanders is a brilliant guy. He really is. And in terms of his politics and in terms of his composure and deportment, he's right up my alley. If he's on the primary ballot against Hillary Clinton, I ain't sure. My gut would say vote for Bernie. And I'm going to tell you something else. And this is important for people to think about for a minute. You've got in this country pockets of people, not just pockets, good-sized areas of people who are finding it hard 
to get by. There was a series on Al Jazeera that was just concluded, as a matter of fact, called Hard Earned. And it told the stories of people who were struggling to get by. It was a very different type of reality TV, and I absolutely loved it. Well, there are large numbers of people across the country for whom their living is hard-earned, for whom their housing is hard-earned. And Bernie, if Bernie Sanders can connect with those people, and it's not easy, by the way, but if Bernie Sanders can connect with those people, and by the way, not all of them are people of color, but if Bernie Sanders can send a message to those folks that says, hey, you know what? I'm with you. I'm not with bankers. I'm not with robber barons. I'm not with people who've been ripping off the government. I'm with you. If he can get that message out to people, he's not just going to be a functionary of moving Hillary Clinton to the left. He's going to challenge Hillary Clinton. Seriously challenge Hillary Clinton. You know, the story starts with a... uh, a strolling of the heifers parade. <laughs> Those are cows, folks. I'm not talking about women. Cows. Uh, in uh, Brattleboro, Vermont, which is Bernie's home turf. And, of course, you know, you might expect people to be like, yo, it's Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. Apparently, a lot of the kids, they were kids in a marching band, all of whom want to take selfies with Bernie Sanders. Now, what's interesting is that he is trying to reach out to people whose lives are harder. Here's what he says. He just talked to a teacher, young teacher. We need good teachers. And he says, quote, and her crime for wanting to get a master's degree was that she is now $200,000 in debt and paying interest rates between 6 and 9%. All of this stuff is crazy stuff. Unquote. Now, what they're going to try and do with Bernie Sanders if he does catch on, and I think he has a better than 50-50 chance he will, what they will try to do with Bernie Sanders is paint him, paint a big S on his forehead. He's a socialist. He admits he's a socialist. What are you, What is that, a crime? He says if the country doesn't Reform environmental policy, more drought, more famine, more rising sea levels, more floods, more ocean acidification, more extreme weather disturbances, and more disease and more human suffering. Well, you're not going to get me to disagree with that. Now, you know, people say he's a long shot. Uh... A lot of people wanted Elizabeth Warren to run. She declined. Bernie stepped up. What's his campaign platform? Unlike Donald Trump, he actually has one. Higher minimum wage, more vacation days, mandated sick pay, free public colleges. Think about that. Imagine what would happen if Bernie Sanders went to... A, number, a dozen public college campuses across America and said to the students there, you know what? I don't think you should have to pay. You don't think people might line up behind him? Right now, apparently, they did some polling in, in Wisconsin that says that Bernie Sanders 
is only like 49 to 41% behind Hillary Clinton. 49 to 41. And remember, party people, that in 2007, eight years ago, Barack Obama was a little-known first-term senator from Illinois who most people thought stood absolutely no chance, no chance of beating Hillary Clinton. Now, Bernie Sanders is a little older. He's called a socialist. But his positions on the issues, man, are tough to assail. Brent Wadowski, my good friend on Observer.com, writes, quote, there is a very real prospect that Mr. Bernie Sanders wins an outright victory in the Iowa caucus. Now, you remember what happened in 2008 in the Iowa caucus in the Democratic Party. That's supposed to be Hillary's to lose. And it was. She lost. Bernie Sanders is an underdog. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. But there are people who are obviously going to stand in the way, you know. Uh, but somebody, somebody in this article had a really interesting quote about Bernie Sanders and about the whole socialist thing. And I want to, I want to kind of close this. Here it is, supporter in Keene, New Hampshire. Because a reporter asked him whether an avowed socialist could win over voters across the country. And this supporter said, quote, he's a democratic socialist, like another celebrated Jewish socialist, Jesus. <laughs> so enough said. Watch Bernie Sanders. He's not just some fill-in-the-blank candidate. Back home for a moment. Uh... Fast food workers, they had a hearing. I don't know why they have to have hearings about this. I really don't. But Governor Cuomo appointed a three-member board, chaired, by the way, uh, by the mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown, to study the need to raise the pay of fast food workers from eight seventy-five an hour, which is a statewide minimum, to $15 an hour. Now, there are 180,000 fast food workers in New York City alone. 180,000. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's in the state of New York. 180,000. That, by the way, is about the same size as Yonkers. 180,000 people. Now, again, referencing Bernie Sanders. Can Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, supports and is, has as part of his platform a, a serious raise in the minimum wage, can Bernie Sanders talk to those 180,000 people and say, you know what? I'm with you. Now, there's pushback. There's pushback on people. Uh, there are people, 60-year-old woman, took a job at Wendy's nine years ago. Still making $9 an hour. She earns two-thirds of what she needs to pay her rent. So she was in rent court every month. 
She supports her 24-year-old granddaughter, but she couldn't qualify for social services because she was repeatedly told she made too much money. She says, quoting here, this is an abomination. She's not lying. Now, uh, there was one guy who stood up to speak against raising the minimum wage, a guy named Howard Nielsen. He owns two Sticky Lips barbecue restaurants around Rochester. He says raising the cost of labor would cut into profits and lead to layoffs and could possibly drive some establishments out of business. Possibly. Possibly. He's saying it's not feasible to pay workers so much more, quote, unless the American public doesn't mind spending 40 to 60 percent more when they eat out. On the other hand, a venture capitalist from Seattle, I emphasize venture capitalist, where, by the way, the minimum wage is already $11, said Seattle's restaurant industry is thriving. He said Seattle has more restaurants per capita than New York or any other city in the country except one. Guess which one it is? San Francisco. Restaurant workers in San Francisco make $12.25 an hour. we got about seven minutes left. A couple more stories to run by you. House Republicans have released a budget proposal that could eliminate funding for the Title X program. This is a network of family planning providers offering birth control, cancer screenings, STD testing, and reproductive health treatments to millions of low-income women across the country. House Republicans. Now, Title X was created in 1970 under Richard Nixon, also a Republican. But now, little by little, bit by bit, and by the way, Nixon said, and this is a quote, it is my view that no American woman should be denied access to family planning assistance because of her economic condition. The times, they are changing. In 2011, I might add, House Republicans voted along party lines to dismantle Title X, mainly because they don't like Planned Parenthood. They also function as abortion clinics. Now, up until now, the democratically controlled Senate has beat back these efforts. But now we wake up this morning and find out that Republicans control the Senate. And it's possible that Congress's final budget could include the elimination of Title X. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that all women are not going to have access to birth control, cancer screenings, STD uh, testing, and reproductive health treatment. It just means poor women won't get access. Again, Bernie Sanders needs to speak to these low-income women and say what the House is trying to do is an abomination, because that's what it is, an abomination. Now, the proposal, the budget proposal from the House Appropriations Committee also wants to roll back much of the Affordable Care Act. Surprise, surprise wants to eliminate most of federal funding for comprehensive sex ed and teen pregnancy prevention programs and give employers more power to refuse to cover reproductive health care services they object to. Can you imagine that? They want to give an employer the right to say, I don't believe in birth control, therefore I shouldn't have to pay for birth control services to my employees. 
It's ridiculous. And, you know, they're getting, by the way, they're doing this to try and gut Planned Parenthood. Something, by the way, they haven't been successful in doing. But that's what they're trying to do. And it's disgusting. It's ridiculous. And it's, I, to me, typical of the Republican overreach that's going to end up, in my judgment, hampering the GOP come next year. You never know, but hey. Uh, a couple more stories. One, police are looking for an assailant in four attacks on Asian women. The punk that's doing this needs to get busted quickly. They got video on the guy. He's black. Looks black anyway. Uh, now that we were in the era of Rachel Dolas, I, I don't know. Maybe he's a black guy that identifies as white. But he has a thing about attacking Asian women. And when they bust him, they need to charge him with a hate crime. Uh, apparently, he like will try and engage Chinese women in conversation and then if they resist or, or walk away or something, he hits them with something, a plastic bag with some sharp object in it. Lock him the heck up. I started to say something I shouldn't have said. The office of New York City Controller Scott Stringer plans to send letters to City Hall and various agencies demanding that they take steps to ensure that people in need of housing are not sent to illegal boarding homes known as three-quarter houses and to provide information that will help the office provide, compile a list of such homes. It is a shame the city doesn't have a list already. How do they not have a list of these places? And apparently the landlords there, among other tactics, encourage these addicts that stay in these places to relapse so they can continue getting money. Can you imagine the goal? Anyway, our final story, the end, I promise. Uh, and this is uh, kind of close to my heart because I've, I've been involved with DJs, club DJs for a very long time. There is now apparently some kind of Christian group of club DJs. I never knew this. place called Ultrasound DJs in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So apparently somebody that wanted... Uh, 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 some party stuff done, some DJing done uh, for uh, a gay friend who's celebrating his 60th birthday. And these people said, no. Ultrasound said, we won't be able to do it. We're a Christian organization. It would go against our faith. I'm sorry. It's against their faith to play for gay people. Now, this is against the law in the state of Maryland. Been against the law since 2001. Do I smell a lawsuit? Time for me to get out of here. Let me thank Jason Taubenfeld, all the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. We'll be seeing you next week. Same bad time, same bad channel for the Mark Riley Show. I'm Mark Riley. Have yourself a great rest of the day and a better Yeah. <laughs>